The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you can, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word in Romans chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me. Romans chapter 1. Thank you so much for being there with me. I'll kind of pick up speed as I promised. We're going to cover verses 8 through 15 uh, as in our fifth study now of the book of Romans. If you'll turn there with me. This is where we've been. I just want to read it foundationally as we move to verses 8 through 15 today. But let's take a look first at this. Paul now, who is Paul? He says three things about himself. A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God, which is going to be the subject of what he's going to say in this epistle. What about this gospel of God? It was its Old Testament and New Testament, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's Christ-centered concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And what do we do with this gospel? Through whom we have received grace and apostleship, we're saved and sent, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name to all the nations. We're a missions church including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome, what is our identity? Who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you. There's the foundation. Peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's our capstone. Now, he's going to set the foundation for this gospel of God. We'll take a look at it in verses 8 through 15. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Whenever I uh, start into a sermon, I want to give you an anticipation of the subject matter that we're covering. And usually with one or two thoughts, let me give you two this morning. Um, One, there is an amazing word that seemingly all of our children learn um, about age three. It's a three-letter word. Why? Clean up your room. Why? Wash your face and hands. Why? Don't play in the street. Why? Have you ever noticed that? Why? Of course, immediately you're asking, why do they ask why? Of course, I like why from my kids because it then led me to five other words that became a part of my vocabulary uh, because I said so. Sometimes it would be seven words because I said so. That's why. So that's what it led to. But why should not amaze you? You didn't stop asking it at age four or five. As soon as there's a cataclysmic event, 
As soon as there's something overwhelming in the culture, as soon as something happens that's not right lined up with the way you think it ought to happen, you start asking, why? Why? Now, let me tell you why you ask why. Because you're made in the image of God. God does everything on purpose. God establishes cause and effect. When you see an effect, you ask, why? What's the cause? When you see something that happens, you instinctively, being made in the image of God, know there's purpose. Because you live that way. Harry, I don't live on purpose. I live serendipity. I don't live on purpose. Well, that's a purpose. You've decided you're not going to have a purpose. Therefore, you are now free to serve all the purposes of everybody else. But you purpose to do that. We're made in the image of God. We do things on purpose. Therefore, when things happen, we ask why. So it's appropriate. I gave you a list of questions we were going to try to answer in this as we went into this epistle. And I said, slow down with me because there's five. There's a number of questions I want to ask. Who's writing it? Well, it's Paul. And we've already heard about Paul called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, a slave of Christ Jesus. Secondly, we ask the question, whom is he writing to? The Christians at Rome, this burgeoning church right in the center of a pagan empire that is now 20 plus years old, that was born at Pentecost by the grace of God. And then we ask the question, well, where was he when he wrote it? Well, you can connect back to Acts 20, and you know he was in Sincrea and Corinth when he wrote this epistle. And we know when he wrote it. It was in March. Now, we're not sure if 57 or 58 A.D. It was one of the two, but that's when he wrote it. So we know who, he, who writes it. We know whom he's writing to. We know... Uh, when he writes it, where he writes it, we know what he's writing. He is writing an exposition of the gospel of God. But yet, why? Why? Well, here's what I've got some good news for you. We know why because Paul tells us why. Before he tells us what? The gospel of God. And he gives us the why basically in verses 8 through 15. But hold it. I said two things. Spoiler alert. When I prepare to preach, I'm asking God continually in preparation. God, first of all, would you help me to be faithful to the word, valiant, courageous and compassionate, persuasive, pleading, uh, precise. I pray all of those things in the preparation, um, in the study to come to the pulpit. Uh, to exalt Christ, share the gospel with the lost, and encourage and equip you. And I know that if God answers that prayer, there's some things that are going to happen. Consolation, people are going to get encouraged. People are going to get convicted. People are going to, you know, the, the, the word of God is so amazing in all that it does. And one of those things it does is conviction. So I want you all to know you can take it easy, I think. Maybe not, but I think when this is over, the same thing's going to happen that happened at 8 and 9.30. There's one person that's going to leave here under conviction, and that's me. I welcome you to join me, but this one's aimed at me. And I think you'll see why as we take a look at why Paul writes 
a letter expounding the gospel of God and his grace to save sinners to those at Rome. I think you'll see why. But I do want to tell you this. I'm not going to let you off the hook. There is something I want to share with you, for you, as the conviction points to me. So look with me at verses 8 through 15. Let's take a look at what Paul says. Now, before I read them, let me say something else. I'm about to read something that's really interesting. And that's this. Paul, when he's laying the foundation for the exposition of the gospel of God in these verses to tell you why he is writing this, he gives you a window into his soul and his heart. He normally doesn't do this. If you'll go check the epistles of the Apostle Paul, when he writes, the introduction is usually all about the people he's going to write. And usually it's highly commendable at first before he gets to what he, he needs to challenge him on. He'll tell them, the, the, you know, the word of God is this and that and the other. And he'll do all kinds of things that he'll say. But he, Paul is self-effacing. He's bold. He's courageous. But he's self-effacing. He doesn't bring attention to himself. But in this epistle, I'm about to read something where he is front and center. He is front and center as an apostle, as a preacher, as an evangelist, as a pastor, as an elder in Christ's church. In all of these roles that he embraces by the sovereign calling of God, he's front and center and you, he peels things back so you can look at his heart and his soul. Twelve times he's going to use the word I. He just doesn't do that. But he does here. Twelve times. Now, let me set you at ease. This will not be a 12-point sermon. But twelve times he says I. That gives an amazing insight into his heart. That ends up with conviction to me. And I've lived with it. Now for weeks. And I hope to live with it. For the rest of my life. Would you look with me in verse 8. First. First. This is interesting isn't it? He says first. Now this isn't. that When you read that. Don't hear. Okay when's the second coming? He's not going to have a second. First. Put the word foundationally. Everything I'm going to say is built on what I'm about to say in these few sentences. So first, now what does he say? I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing, ceasing. I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. But thus far, I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation 
both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And by the way, he won't stop there. Next verse, I am not ashamed of that gospel. Now, what is he doing? He's about to write to them and he is communicating something to them about who he is and why he's writing this epistle and why he is giving this glorious exposition of the gospel of God and the saving grace of Christ for sinners who delivers us from the penalty of our sin, the power of our sin, is delivering us from the practice of sin, and one day will deliver us from the presence of sin. What is it that he is saying to us? He wants us to know something about why he is writing this, and he unfolds it by Letting you hear his heart in these words. Well, I've kind of gathered these eyes up into five observations of this gospel saturated leader. This is what I call gospel saturated leadership. That's what Paul is a leader who bleeds the gospel. It comes out of every pore of his existence. The first way you see it is you see that he is a great commission fixation. Now, remember, what is the great commission? It's given to us five times in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have a statement of it. And Acts chapter 1 has one. And here's the great commission. The great commission is to go and preach what? The gospel to all the nations. The great commission is to what? Go with that gospel. There's your message. Now, here's your mission. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. I've given you a mission. You're to make disciples of all the nations. I've given you a message. Preach the gospel. And I've given you this mission and this message with the ministries and mandates of evangelism and discipleship and worship and fellowship and all of those things that I've given you to carry it out. This, as you teach the whole counsel of God, the Bible is held together by the contours of the gospel. And the gospel leads you into all of the very, all of the doctrines of the scriptures. Because the, the scriptures bear witness of Christ. That's what they do. They bear witness of him who gives us eternal life when you come to him who came for you. And Paul has a fixation on the gospel. Even when he writes to these Christians at Rome, it is out of that gospel fixation. His heart is motivated by it. How does this church exist? This church exists as a testimony of the gospel through the Great Commission. Harry, how do you get that? Notice he says, I thank my God for all of you. All of you who? These are Christians. How did they become Christians? Well, we actually know some of them became Christians 20 years earlier when they went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem on a Pentecost pilgrimage. And the outbreak of the spirit of God and the gospel with Peter preaching, some Jews from Rome came there and they were converted and then came back to Rome. 
You exist because of the great commission that began at Jerusalem, went to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. That's why there's a gospel outpost. That's why there's a gospel colony in Rome. That's why there's a gospel-saturated church in Rome, because of the great commission that started in Jerusalem. And then he's later going to mention 28 people that he knows who have come to Christ in other places because the Great Commission went from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and others were led to Christ. And then these Christians, we find out, get migrated to this center of the, of the world, which is called Rome. And some of them came there. He'll mention 28 of them. Paul's, he, he has this personal relationship with 28 identifiable people in Romans chapter 16. But he's never been to Rome. Why? Because they got converted in other places and God moved them there. This is a great commission. This church exists as a testimony of the great commission. And this church exists because of the great commission's unstoppable movement. I'll be with you to the end of the age. A man by the name of Claudius in 43 AD tried to destroy this church. He sent away all of the Christian Jews. Claudius is dead. The church now in 57 AD continues. This is a great commission church. Its existence proclaims the power of the gospel advanced through the great commission. But more than that, this church is not only a trophy and a consequence of the great commission through the power of the gospel. This church is now a player. They're a participant in the Great Commission. Go back to what I just read. Look at verse uh, verse uh, 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. The Great Commission came to you and you got converted. And now this church is here. Because your faith is proclaimed where? To all the world. Now you're a player in the Great Commission. You are sending the gospel from Rome to all the world and the nations. You are a part of of what you've been blessed by. <laughs> but wait. That's not all. Not only are you a testimony of the power of the gospel through the Great Commission. Not only are you a participant in the power of the gospel with the Great Commission. But more than that. I've got some special news for you. I'm going to take this to another level. Take your Bibles. Keep your finger right there at Romans 1. Slip over to Romans 15. Romans 15. What does he say here in Romans 15? He gives all again. He recounts all the reasons why he's not able to be there. And then in Romans 15 down to verse 22. This this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions and since I have longed for many years to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, let me translate that. I'm going to come and we're going to have a missions conference and you're going to send me to Spain. (laughs) Not only. Are you a testimony of the Great Commission? Not only are you a part of the Great Commission, I specifically, I'm going to let you be a supporting church as I go to Spain. And we're going to send the Great Commission to Spain. That's what's going to happen. Now, this this shouldn't surprise you. Because Paul, when Paul fulfills the Great Commission, 
He does evangelism, he does discipleship, and he plants and strengthens churches in key cities. He does it all the time. If you go through the book of Acts, you'll find Paul going to, by my count, 28 cities. 22 of them were power centers. He doesn't just pick off the easy. He doesn't go for low-hanging fruit. He goes where the people are gathered, and he goes right into the power centers. He goes into the power center of the, um, of the pagan culture when he goes to Ephesus. He goes to the power center of sexual anarchy and sexual immorality when he goes to Corinth. He goes to the intellectual power center of Athens and Mars Hill. He goes to the he goes to the power center of legalism in Jerusalem. He goes to the power center of paganism at Antioch. He is ready to go. I remember a young man that I had the privilege to mentor, and he was a church planter. He went up to Chicago, planted a church right beside the loop is what it's called. And um, that's quite a place. And I remember him writing back. He said, well, preacher, you told me that Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, I'm not saying Chicago and the loop is the gates of hell, but I'm sure smelling a lot of smoke here. And that's the heart of Paul. He goes right into the teeth of the citadels of this world. He goes right into to rescue the perishing, to proclaim the gospel, to be on mission. And now he's ready to go to Spain. But you know what he does? He loves to go and do evangelism and discipleships and plant churches from gospel-saturated churches. How does he go out on his first two missionary journeys? From Antioch. Where we were first called Christians. Then we're to, how, then on the third missionary journey, what becomes his center point? His flagship church. His home church. His sending church. Ephesus. Where he's there for three years. Now, he's ready to go to Spain. I need another sending church. But I can't have just any sending church. I've got to have a gospel-saturated sending church. So I can't get there to teach it. The next best thing I can do is write this Holy Spirit-inspired letter on the gospel of God. Because I want you to drink of this gospel and then send me out with it. That's what he is. He is a, he is a great commission fixation on mission and on message. The gospel foundational message of grace and peace in Christ. And then he's ready to go do the ministry. A great commission fixation is the Apostle Paul as a pastor, as a preacher, as an apostle. Secondly, he is a past, he's got a pastor's heart of anticipation. He knows. He, listen, Paul, did you hear uh, what is happening out of, uh, out of the Roman Senate? Yeah. Paul, did you hear what's happening out of the seat of the emperor? Yeah. Paul, did you hear what these philosophers are saying in Athens? Yes. Well, Paul, are you going to go die in a pile of self-pity? No, because I know God's grace is greater than sin. I know the key to this world is not found in the citadels of this world. The key to this world is found in the colony of the kingdom, which is the church of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. That's what I know, and that's what I am 
committed to bringing. Oh, I care what's happening to those places. In fact, when he gets his way and finally gets there, Caesar's household is going to get evangelized by the Apostle Paul. But what he is telling us in this is that I have an anticipation and my pastor's heart is the same miraculous work of the gospel that put all of you. I thank my God for all of you. Why? Because every single Christian is a walking miracle. They were born in the boneyard of sin and Christ raised them up. They've been born again. They were under the wrath of God and now they are the children. Children of God, the sons and the daughters of God. God's people are the statement that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. Or as you heard at the prelude while we were preparing for worship, wonderful grace, marvelous grace, far beyond anything in our comprehension, irresistible, unstoppable grace of the Lord Jesus. He knows he gives gratitude to God. God, this church is here in Rome. 20 plus years after the ascension of Jesus, because your grace is greater than Claudius. Your grace is greater than persecution. Your grace is greater than our inadequacies. Your grace isn't even dependent on me. I haven't even got there. And look what you have done in the lives of these people. There's the pastor's heart of anticipation of the power of the gospel and the power of the word. And the power of the Holy Spirit. These streams that have brought this church right there in the citadel of military, economic, and political power, Rome, declares it is greater. God's grace is greater. It's amazing. It's irresistible. It is unstoppable. And he said, I've even got 28 friends there. That I know are trophies of grace. Can I just stop here? (laughs) Because I feel that. You see, as I look at you, same way in the first two services, I could walk down from here and start walking through the pews. I can give you a name. And I don't know everything, but I know some things in your life. I know you're saved because God's grace is greater than your sin. I know what He's doing in your life. I see, I know, not all of them, I know some of the triumphs of grace. I know right now where you've got the battles. Now listen, you're in a world, now listen to me, you're in a world that's broken. Some of you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You're in a broken world that only offers idols of death. That's all it offers. That's all it will give to you. Don't buy it. Leave it. Leave yourself and come to Jesus Christ. And he will not take you out of the world, but he'll take the world out of you and he'll fill you with himself. So you come today to him. And today, if you're a believer and all of this news of division and death and destruction, don't go die in a pile Don't take a bath of self-pity. Get a gospel heart of anticipation. God, I don't know what you're going to do yet. But would you just go ahead and start with me and my family? And I know your grace is greater than sin. All of sin and all of my sin. 
He's got a pastor's heart of anticipation. Thirdly, he has a gospel fed, vital prayer life of supplication. Notice, I think, look at this. Watch this, folks. Watch this. Go to this next verse with me. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, see this persistent prayer life? Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. So he's got a persistent prayer life praying for uh, the people that he ministers to. And then he says, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at least at last succeed in coming to you. He wants to, he wants to, I can't imagine. Paul said, well, don't worry, I'll zoom. No, he wants to get there. Face to face, belly to belly, eyeball to eyeball, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I want to be with you. We are the called together ones. I want, I ask God continually. He's laid you on my heart. Would he get me there with you? So he not only is praying for them, he's praying to get to them. Yet he is ready to surrender to God's will because God has said no. You know, when you ask, I'll ask people, say, um, uh, how's it going? Fine. Oh, yeah, God, uh, God answered my prayer. I know what they mean. I know what I'm about to hear. They prayed about something and God did what they prayed about. And I said, and then I just like to every once in a while, not often, remind people God's answer is not always yes. And when God says no, that's answered prayer. But sometimes when God says no, he's not no forever. It's no for right now. It's not right time. So, Paul, I can almost imagine in the heavens, the angel, well, here comes Paul again, still wanting to get to Rome. How many times are you going to ask? Well, he keeps asking because the burden for them has not left his heart. But he doesn't want to impose his will. He wants to make his will known. And then he surrenders. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And so God has said no. So he says, okay, then I, then not only does he say yes, not only does he say no, but sometimes he says no so that I'll just keep praying. So uh, he has persistent prayer of intercession for the people, persistent prayer for intercession of guidance, and persistent prayer for the success of the gospel in the life of this church. And so he is constantly praying in that direction for them. I long to be with you. You know what's going to happen? This is 57 A.D. In just a couple of years, God's going to say, okay, now it's yes. You're going. First thing he's going to do is he's going to go to Jerusalem and bring a gift. Then they're going to try to kill him and God's going to deliver him. Then they're going to arrest him in Jerusalem. Then they're going to take him and put him in prison in Caesarea Philippi. And he's going to be there a couple of years to fulfill God's calling where he preaches to kings and governors and those in authority. Then... By his appeal, guess where he's going? To Rome. Now, how's he going to arrive at Rome? He's got a prison ministry. He's going to have a prison ministry from which he's going to lead people from Caesar's household and from the imperial guard to Christ, as well as minister to the church at Rome. So, see, God had another plan. I'm not going to send you there with an itinerant ministry. I'm going to send you there with a prison ministry. And by the way, it's going to be all expenses paid by the Roman government. And so he will go and do that. After a couple of years, he'll be set free. He'll write some letters. We benefit from them. A couple of years, he'll get set free. Then they'll re-arrest him again. And then God will take him home. 
But don't miss the fact that the Apostle Paul has every commitment to bathe the mission and the message with intercessory prayer that surrenders to the Lord and prays for people. Number four, he has a supreme calling and vocation. I just love this. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this supreme calling. I long, verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You see what he's saying? I want to come and pastor you. I want to, I want to be an asset to your spiritual life and growth in Christ. I want to come and impart to you a spiritual gift for your maturation in Christ. I long to be there. Now, by the way, I want to make sure you understand this. Your life in Christ is not dependent upon me. But I want to come and be a part of what Christ is doing in your life. And, hey, I'm not there, but y'all are there. See how he makes it clear? It's not just me that we will share. It's reciprocal. You've got gifts that you share with each other. You can minister to each other. You can impart spiritual gifts to each other. It's not just, well, we can't grow till Paul shows up. No, I'm going to come and join what you're already doing in each other's life. It's not just me. It's what we enjoy together in the Lord. So I can't get there yet, but I want to get there. Why? Because I've got a calling. In fact, look, look at one more thing. Go to verse 14. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolishness, to the foolish. Why is he under obligation to the Jews and the Gentiles? Because he was under obligation to Christ who called him to go to them with evangelism and discipleship. That's what that's his supreme calling. In fact, I, I skipped something. Go back to me. Go back to verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I've often tended to come to you, but thus far have been present, prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He had a calling in his mission, the Great Commission and his message to evangelize. I want a harvest. I want a harvest. Now, listen, folks. You can't convert anybody, but you can evangelize. Sometimes you're planting. Sometimes you're watering. Sometimes you're cultivating. Cindy and I were away doing a missions conference last week. Thanks for praying for us. <clears throat> the night before the Sunday, we took some time in the lobby of the place where we were staying. A couple came up and clearly were very extroverted, wanted a conversation which is not my normal type, uh, you know, not my normal course. I usually, in moments like that, believe it or not, I sit in a corner and read a book. But um, I said, well, Lord, you've opened the door. So I used about two or three questions, and I got the whole thing turned around to Jesus. <laughs> it started off, uh, I think it was orthopedics. Is what, no, it was construction we were talking about. But I got it to Jesus. And um, then I began to share Jesus. <laughs> it wasn't long after that. I mean, I got into Jesus and shared Jesus and gave an account of some people who had met Jesus and what Jesus had done in my life. And then all of a sudden, one of the people that was there said, you know, um, it's time to eat. I think I need to move on. Uh, we, we've got to go. <laughs> well, I could tell I wasn't making a lot of headway. That's okay. That's okay. 
I may not be reaping the harvest, but I'm planting the seed. Folks, that's just what God's called us to do. God's called you to evangelize. God's called you to make disciples. God's called you to be disciples. That's your vocation. I had a wonderful conversation with a young man in this church just this last week. We were talking about what's he going to do with the rest of his life. And then he mentions that as he's been coming and growing, he said, you know, I just realized my satisfaction is not in my job. He said, that's a means to an end. My satisfaction is serving Jesus as a husband and a father and to evangelize and Bingo. Touchdown. Touchdown. I mean, I wanted to blow the whistle and strike up the band right there. That's what Paul, Paul's job. Paul didn't live to be a tent maker. He made tents to do his vocation and calling on the mission, on the message, evangelism and discipleship with those ministries. And that's what filled his heart. That was I'm under obligation to this. I don't do this to be saved. I do this because I love the one who loved me and set me free. I am a servant slave of Christ set apart for the gospel. This is what fills my heart. That means, number five, your gospel saturated. And your gospel passion and saturation. Did you see? I'm eager to preach the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am eager to preach it. I am not ashamed of it. The gospel just poured into his life. Because it was with that gospel message he was brought to Jesus who is now his life. And therefore, everything else serves that. Doesn't compete with it. Doesn't diminish it. Doesn't displace it. It is this gospel that gives me a heart for my calling and vocation and confidence in my intercession and with a heart of anticipation to stay on mission, on message with a great commission fixation. And that's what God has filled me to overflowing to do. Well, I'm going to give you a takeaway in a minute, but before I do, let me give you this in closing. Next week is our missions conference, Found Faithful. I thought this last week uh, about doing a special sermon, but I realized this text is all we need. Because I'm convinced after reading this text that if the Apostle Paul somehow showed up here and said, what are you all doing next week? I said, Paul, Paul, we're having a missions conference called Found Faithful. I think he would applaud Great. Who you got coming? Hey, we got one going to Spain coming. (laughs) You might be interested in talking to him. Um, I think Paul would applaud a conference, whether it's for national missions like we had a couple of months ago or for world missions, which is this coming week. And pray about how we can engage with prayer and personally. And is God calling me to be a cross-cultural missionary or short-term missions or be on a missions committee or how we can pray about it? What about our faith? I think Paul would applaud that. In fact, I know he would. But I think Paul would say this to us. Don't make this a conference of your church. This is your church. 
your own mission. You're all missionaries. Your own message. Stay in the ministry. Don't make this a week. Make it your life. And it will be your life if Jesus is your life and the gospel of grace is your passion and your saturation. That's what I believe the Apostle Paul would say to us. And there's something inescapable that I also need to say. I'm in a nation as a citizen that is in desperate need, desperate need of a gospel awakening movement. It's in desperate need. In fact, I'm not a prophet nor son of a prophet. I don't think it's long for this world without it. I don't think this is a political cosmetic issue. I think this is a heart issue of a culture that's embracing paganism and being destroyed with a culture of death. And its only hope is the gospel. A gospel awakening. But folks, I know something else as I look at the Bible, as I look at Paul, and as I look at history. Gospel awakenings to a nation and to nations in God's economy come through gospel-saturated and gospel-driven churches. It doesn't happen because a Senate votes for it or a Congress votes for it. Or a president gives an executive order for it. It comes through the colony of the kingdom. The embassy of the kingdom. The kingdom that is stewards to be found faithful with the gospel. That's where it comes from. But I also know something else. Gospel awakenings don't come without. Gospel saturated and driven churches. And gospel-saturated and driven churches do not exist unless there is gospel-saturated and gospel-driven leaders for those churches. Elders, deacons, pastors. Every time God does something glorious, He raises up leaders. Just go check your Bible and check church history. And if you want a gospel-saturated and driven church, you've got to have gospel-saturated and driven leaders. Now, let me let you off the hook before I put you on it. I don't think you get gospel-saturated leaders, gospel-driven leaders, who by God's grace lead churches that are on mission, on message, and in ministry because those churches are gospel-driven and gospel-saturated. I don't think you get those leaders without a gospel-driven, gospel-saturated pastor like Paul. That's why I wanted to get there. best thing you could do is send a letter, but that's not enough. I want to get there. Gospel-saturated pastors who are Great Commission fixed. Gospel-saturated pastors 
who have a heart of anticipation because of their confidence in the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Gospel-saturated pastors who have a vital prayer life of intercession and surrender to the Holy Spirit and the leading of God. Gospel-saturated pastors who give attention to their supreme calling to preach the gospel and evangelize and disciple. And gospel-driven, saturated pastors who embrace the gospel. So if you cut them, they bleed it. When they breathe, they breathe it. They, they, they just breathe it out of the pores of their skin and out of their mouth and out of their lives. That's what I believe. Why do I believe that? Because of what I just read to you in Romans 1, 8 through 15, that I would put with this takeaway for you. The why Paul wrote a letter to expound the gospel of God to the church in Rome is simply answered in the who Paul was because of the gospel of God, by the grace of God, to the glory of God. This was his life. And he wanted it to be in the life of the church that would send him to Spain. And therefore, I can't get there, so I'll send you what this gospel is, and then I'll get there. And that's what he would do. And I'm going to put you back on the hook. If what I'm saying is true, do you think Satan knows this? Hello? You better believe he knows it. If I say, I don't want a gospel awakening in this nation. Well, I, that means I don't want gospel-saturated, driven, passionate churches. That means I don't want gospel-passionate, uh, gospel-driven and passionate uh, leaders, And that means I want to make sure we don't have gospel-saturated and passionate preachers and pastors. So he goes into seminaries and destroys them before they even get started. He goes where they're in ministry and they're discouraged and says, hey, it's this program. It isn't the gospel. It's a program. It's your innovation, not your, not your persistence in the gospel. It's innovation or discouragement. He's an absolute, absolute master at striking down the shepherd so that the sheep will scatter. So I'm not going to let you off the hook. I want to put you back on the hook. One of the greatest moments, I believe, in the life of this church was in 2003 when the membership of this church by families made a commitment to pray for the leadership of this church at least at one meal a day and regularly and the pastor in particular. That God would keep him faithful, focused, and overflowing with the love of Christ. May I ask you to so pray again. Can I tell you why? Because Satan prays against people like me. And he prays, P-R-E-Y-S, on us. Man, just go read your news. Go read the, the reports of what's happening. Satan prays against us. P-R-A-Y-S and praise on us. P-R-E-Y-S. But I'm not a victim. But I desperately need the intercessory prayers of God's people that I would be fixed on Jesus and the Great Commission. Anticipating the power of the gospel on mission, on message, and in ministry. I know he does it. Just go read the book of Job. Satan went before God. That's a prayer. I want Job. That's praying on him. He's targeting Job. Or go get Luke 22. 
Before Jesus goes to the cross, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has requested permission. That's a prayer request. Satan has requested permission to sift y'all like wheat. He prays on leadership. So I'm asking you for intercessory prayer. Secondly, I'm asking you to join me to let's prioritize the training of the next generation of pastors. I thank God for our Birmingham Theological Seminary, our engagement at Westminster Theological Seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm grateful for what they're doing on mission, on message, and in ministry. We desperately need to get up to next mission. I thank God for the 14 men I meet with every month moving into ministry. I pray God would do a great work through them. Let's stay the course and prioritize this next generation. Number three, put your confidence not in the preacher. Our confidence and my confidence needs to be in the power of the word, the power of the gospel, and the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the moment in the movie. In the 54th Massachusetts, the first African-American combat unit that made the assault at Fort Wagner in 1863. And I love the moment in the revival that took place right before the charge. These men, knowing 70 percent were going to die. Denzel Washington represents one of those men. He looks at him, he says. Men, let's go. I love this phrase. We're men, ain't we? Pastors, elders, deacons. We're leaders, ain't we? Let's take Christ's church on mission, on message, and in ministry. And watch what he does. When I finished preaching on the street in Macon last week, a sergeant came up and said, God had me here because of you. And what you said, this week he met with the pastor and he and his wife committed their life to Christ on mission, on message, in ministry. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the moments we could be together. Please minister to us in these moments. Holy Spirit, speak. Praise your name, Jesus. You're the Savior of sinners. I pray in your name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.